This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome again to Extra with me, Geraldine Doog, here on RN. We have a, a lovely hour for you. We're going to a story about rewilding of Europe, which I really think will warm you to the cockles of your heart. All sorts of things being reintroduced into the European landscape that haven't been there for hundreds of years, maybe even longer, and really recovering too. And also, we'll clarify some of the decisions we have to make as a nation about how we defend ourselves, where we put our money, uh, where we don't put our money, where are the gaps thus far, and are our military forces really best placed, I suppose, um, for the sorts of threats that we might face. Now, we've talked about teacher crises before, but arguably never before has the country faced such an alarming shortage in teachers, particularly specialist teachers, not just for maths and science, but also in English and history, subjects with once an abundant supply, and no longer are shortages confined to regional and rural areas. Accordingly, there's a real push to bring back to the profession qualified teachers who've left it. And many schools across the Catholic and independent sectors are seeking older retired teachers to plug holes that are emerging, especially post-COVID. This teacher shortage is not just an Australian problem. The UN says globally there's a worldwide shortage of 69 million teachers, they predict, in the not-too-distant future. Well, our state and federal ministers are sitting down together this coming week to try to agree on some solutions to address the problem. I'm now pleased to welcome Mark Grant. He's the chief executive of the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership to flesh out some of the solutions that might be agreed upon. Welcome to Saturday Extra. Thanks very much, Geraldine. Good to be with you. Look, overview first. Is the system at breaking point in some states? It sounds like that anyway. Is that how you see it or not? Look, I certainly agree with your introduction. It's um, There's never been as many um, factors combined to create stresses in the system. Um, increased student enrolments, uh, a slightly ageing workforce, uh, an effect of COVID and, uh, and a, a very tight labour market across Australia that's giving teachers and others uh, in the workforce alternative choices to consider. So we've got to the point we haven't been before or is this a cyclical thing? Look, I've, I've not seen any data that shows it's, uh, it's been like this before and people who've got uh, even longer education history than me, um, they do go back to the mid-70s when we brought in a lot of teachers from overseas but we didn't have the student populations uh, then that we do now and equally now we have, a, I guess, a greater expectation of our education system in terms of the specialisations taught, particularly in secondary schools. Mm. Uh, there was a recent New South Wales parliamentary report which was really pretty stark uh, with describing acute staff shortages, many cases of classes being merged to be taught by one mm-hmm. teacher, for instance, maths classes being taught by PE teachers, uh, senior high school classes without teachers, mm-hmm. and there was one story of an 83-year-old teacher being brought out of retirement to fill a gap. Mm-hmm. Now, it, again, is that across the nation or is this in the, the bigger states? Oh, look, it is, it is quite a common scenario that you've painted there. Um, the the, the com- combining of classes, actually, I would say, is not so much about um, combined classes being taught, but just combined classes being supervised. So the stories 
I hear from um, people in the field is three or more classes in a location like a, a hall or a library or if the weather allows uh, out in the playground and they're just being supervised by the one teacher. So it's not so much they're being taught, it's they're being supervised. Now that same parliamentary report found that 60% of teachers were considering leaving the profession and they cited workload, the diminished status of teaching and salary. This is because I want to get to this, is the major factor contributing to shortages. We've been talking about this for so long. Mm-hmm. Why is the progress so hard? Look, I, I certainly think the data is telling us, so even our own data on our own national reports that we collect um, on the largest study of all teachers in Australia, there are multiple set of factors that are combining to make teaching an unattractive profession and for those who are in it, uh, for them to question the continuation in that profession. Salary, as you say, has always been a problem um, and I think governments have an issue between what they'd like to pay and capacity to pay. But there's no doubt we need to look at salary differently and our, our most expert teachers, nationally known as highly accomplished or lead teachers, Certainly the premium that they deserve for that expertise is usually uh, not given, or if it is given, it's uh, something like up to 10%, whereas in international countries, it's uh, many international countries, Singapore, England, etc., it's 40% or more. We really do need to look at pay in a, a serious way. But the other factors the, the, the ref- that people tell us about red tape, excessive administration um, requirements, um, a plethora of requirements uh, that go to, um, I guess, sucking the passion out of teaching and learning that's been there for so long. I wonder if it's getting caught. I mean, a lot of people talk about this in a lot of professions, if you know what I mean, uh, that it actually, that the front uh, the front of house work, which is often what's drawn them in and they love, is just put under constant pressure by mm-hmm. the need for accountability. All those things that we know we like, but I wonder whether teaching in a sense is even more like it's such a human to human activity, isn't it? Or at least it has been. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, it is. And I think over the recent, you know, decade or two, you've also seen increased um, accountabilities that have impacted teachers and others um, who deal with students um, in a sort of customer relationship, if you like, through things like working with children checks and child protection requirements, mm. all very important, no doubt about it, absolutely. But it does uh, sometimes bring um, a greater degree of um, accusation, uh, often proven subsequently to be unfounded. And some of those things bite really hard and there is some data to indicate that for the perceptions of some male teachers, and remember it is still a very heavily feminised workforce, that is a reason some people uh, don't come in and some people uh, leave. The Federal Education Minister, Jason Clare, has called this meeting this week with his state counterparts. I don't think there's been anything quite like that before. What will be the key talking points? Look, I, I haven't um, I haven't seen uh, anything that relates to the specifics of it, but I do know just from talking to states and territories who, as you say, have been invited to the round table uh, at the end of the week, that they've been uh, they've been asked to bring some of their demand data. In other words, what do their vacancies look like uh, in certain geographical locations, in subject areas, that sort of thing? And it's the missing piece of the puzzle, Geraldine, um, the supply data from universities. We know the forty seven institutions that provide initial teacher education graduates uh, into into education. But what we really don't have in any national context is the overview of the demand data and what's needed in what subject so that universities have the lead time to advertise and produce those graduates. We really don't have a national digest of that, don't we? 
No, look, um, to be fair... I find that um, extraordinary, actually. I've I got to say the same thing. For a workforce of 346,000, you would think so. Oh. In 2019, ministers did actually um, commission ATEL to develop a national teacher workforce strategy, which we delivered um, to them um, and COVID, I think, really just um, yes, was a distraction, for want of a better way of putting it. And I really hope that one of the outcomes from next Friday is a commitment to actually putting together a proper professional workforce strategy. On the text line, you can imagine we're getting texts now. It, one uh, l- listener says, it's all about salary. The rest is just a distraction. I'm 53 and I and many of my peers would love to jump out of our careers to spend the rest of our working lives in teaching, but it doesn't pay anywhere near enough to keep our families fed. Yeah. Now, is that going to be an issue for us to have to, we have to face? Look, I've certainly seen Minister Clare make comments about teachers deserving to be paid more, so I think it'll come up next week. The industries that we probably um, see some of our teachers um, um, competed for as an employee are the industries that pay uh, higher salaries than what uh, you would get as a traditional teacher. The, The difference would be those with expertise who can get that national certification, if we did recognise the premium of that expertise in a financial sense, those salaries would go up by potentially 40, 50 plus thousand dollars if you follow the international lead, and then those salaries do become more competitive. But at the moment, it'd be a pay cut for many in, uh, in certain industries to retrain to come into teaching. Which is what they say they're exactly going to have to try to do. Look, your submissions to a productivity commission uh, looking at the uh, issues made some key recommendations. Could you talk us through, please, your ideas uh, for people mid-career who may want to make a career change to become a teacher? Yeah, look, certainly, um, and some of these are not new ideas, but but we really need to consider them at scale now, such as the need for um, the current and future uh, workforce. But, for instance, a, a six- to 12-month paid internship for career changes, the point you were just making, um, who can actually earn some dollars um, while they upgrade their credentials. So at the moment, um, for those who do want to retrain, it can be up to a two-year process with no income. So the notion of the paid internship, and to be fair, I could give Queensland as, as an example. They, uh, they pay uh, a $20,000 um, uh, amount on effectively on enrolment. Uh, then they have the uh, internship where it's a 50% teaching load with a $50,000 salary. Now, those kinds of innovations are going to make it possible for some people to look to retrain into teaching. But that notion of the internship, school-based model, system support, offer of a job at the end and paid during the course are the elements that we're hearing are required. And look, finally, is any country getting this right? Look, that's an excellent question. Um, I know, um, for instance, uh, I saw the the Washington Post is carrying the shortages of their staffing. Uh, Schools go back um, on Monday um, uh, for their next Mm. uh, semester. 8,000 teachers short in Florida, for example. Um, Good good one. You you had the UNESCO figures of 69 million. It is a worldwide uh, problem in that teaching generally, in some countries it's highly valued, and the status of the profession is extreme, but is it, that isn't the norm. And the salaries, generally speaking, have been left behind by movements in industry. Mm. Very interesting. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Have a good day. Mark Grant is the Chief Executive of the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leadership. Well, time now to consider another set of thorny questions with our August edition of A Foreign Affair and the Weapons of Deterrence. 
to walk the road of peace, sometimes we need to be ready to climb the mountain of conflict. Tommy said, Mr. President, you're wrong. Now that takes a lot of guts. And for peace and quiet, Mr. Lude, it's why I came to the UN, quiet diplomacy. Yes, this month, the choices that are and are not available to us to defend our country should it become necessary. Around the world, various militaries are grappling with the pace of change in geopolitics, in technology, with their labour force. After decades of relative peace in our particular communities, it doesn't feel settled at all. Remember our former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd dubbing this the decade of living dangerously. What is clear are big questions like these. How will Australian taxpayers' money be spent as wisely as possible to get both value for money plus maximum security as fast as possible? Well, we'll tease these apart because they can overwhelm and we're not in that business. And, of course, this week, Defence Minister Richard Miles announced this comprehensive strategic review of our defence force, uh, the, the biggest in three decades. So three specialists are with me now to help us understand. Alan DuPont, Alan Beam and Melissa Connolly-Tyler. Alan is, DuPont is a veteran defence analyst. Alan Beam has much experience in senior public service roles in defence and a former minister to Penny Wong, former advisor to Penny Wong. And Melissa Connolly-Tyler is an ex-diplomat, now program lead at a relatively new venture, the Asia-Pacific Development Diplomacy and Defence Dialogue. Welcome to you all. Thank you, Geraldine. Thank you very much, Geraldine. Uh, In announcing this review of the ADF, which is to be conducted by former Defence Force Chief Sir Angus Houston and former Labor Defence Minister Stephen Smith, here's what Houston had to say about the reasoning behind it. It's absolutely imperative that we review the current strategic circumstances, which I rate the worst I've ever seen in my career and lifetime. And here's how Defence Minister Richard Miles summed it up. Given our strategic circumstances, what is it that we want our Defence Force to do on behalf of our nation in this moment? Now, the review will look at the ADF's structure, posture and preparedness uh, for the next decade. And it's led, designed to be the most searching since the famed Dib report of 1986. Alan DuPont, decode this for us, if you would, please. Yes, OK. So what it really means is that the Albanese government is going to look really right across the board of the way in which our Defence Force is structured to see if it's optimally configured for the new challenges ahead, particularly the Chinese challenge in the region. That's pretty clear. Um, What it won't include is a new strategy, and the argument is that the government is happy with the last strategic update that was done in 2020. So they're going to go with the actual strategy as spelled out in that document. But what they want to do look at is what do we need to change about the Defence Force I think, to make it more lethal and more capable of defending Australia in the new security environment, which is much more challenging, as Angus Houston has pointed out. And I would agree with him that it is the most challenging security environment I have seen in my lifetime as well. So I I would absolutely endorse what he said. That's the big challenge. And the the big question coming out of all this, of course, is, is it going to be affordable? Does this mean the defence budget's going to go up? Or is the Albanese government going to reconfigure the pie and uh, with the existing budget? That's the unknown. 
Mm. Yes, because I mean, some people have said that um, we could actually um, go for proven designs in our defence procurement that were already in service. But the government, the previous government, went for the bespoke and boutique approach. Now, I again would like you to decode that. Is that a reasonable observation? Yes, I wouldn't quite put it that way. I think the problem has been twofold. One is we've been fighting all sorts of small sort of counterinsurgency, counterterrorism wars around the world for the last 20 years, and our defence force has been configured for that, essentially operating with the United States. So now we have to actually um, restructure that force to defend Australia's interests in our own region against potentially a major power. So that's the first problem. So the argument that Australia... Uh, is a boutique force is probably, I don't think it's quite an accurate encapsulation. The problem is that Australia has taken, it takes too long to acquire the capabilities we need. So I think the business model for acquiring new technology, new weapon systems and all the enabling infrastructure needs to be looked at and changed to bring the private sector in so that you can get the capabilities we need much more quickly and more cheaply. What sort of equipment do you say the ADF should be looking at or reconsidering? Yeah, so I think it's there's pretty much agreement among most of the commentariat on this point that we just don't have enough lethal weapons in our armament. And if you look at what's happening in Ukraine, you can see that this is the future of warfare, unfortunately. These precision-guided munitions, uh, they're quite expensive, Uh, You need to have large infantries of them because you exhaust them pretty quickly when you have a conventional war. I mean, basically, uh, even with all the countries supporting Ukraine, uh, you know, they've run out, they've run down the stockpiles of existing munitions pretty quickly, and so have the Russians. So Australia is far worse off. We essentially don't have any stockpiles of these missiles, uh, and we, we still don't yet produce them ourselves. So that's one obvious area that we've got to do something about. And the second thing is the speed with which we acquire these new systems. How, how long is it going to take us to do this? If there's going to be a, an issue in the, in the uh, South China Sea or a confrontation with China over Taiwan, that is likely to occur, most of us think, in the next five to eight years. Uh, how long is it going to take us to get our nuclear submarines and all these other things? Much longer than that. That's just not acceptable. Mm. So what is it that we can get quickly uh, and strategically to make our force a much more effective defence force for these new circumstances? Alan Beam, what do you see uh, behind this landmark strategic review? Let me begin with the remarks of of Angus Houston. Uh, uh, Angus is much, obviously much younger than I think he is because... In my lifetime, which may be somewhat longer than Alan's or Angus's, um, there have been the Korean War, uh, the Malayan emergency and all that happened there, the, the confrontation with Indonesia and the Vietnam War, not to mention our excursions to Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, all of these uh, were, were very significant in their time, um, particularly the Korean War, And yet we are looking at evolving circumstances through the prism of history. Now, history always informs the present, but it's very, very poor guide to the future. So what I think is the problem here is that we are looking to the north. We're extremely worried about it. We're presuming that uh, China is going to be uh, 
not only a, a hegemon, but is also going to be a highly militarised one, using military force against its neighbours and uh, fortiori against us. Now, I, I don't know that any of that is demonstrable. Um, I think it's a good thing to be concerned about the direction that China is taking, as indeed we should be very concerned about the direction that the United States appears to be taking in North Asia, um, particularly when you have freelanced foreign policy being conducted by the Speaker of the House of Representatives. So but I, I suppose think... underneath all this is, is there, are we exposed? There certainly doesn't seem, as I said, it doesn't seem settled. So even if, if it turns out that a lot of the worries are slightly misguided, they may not be, um, should we assume that, that we are okay when we're quite clearly not, not properly equipped, Alan Beam? No, look, we should always be alert. But uh, to think that uh, we, we should have faith-based policy, that is, that we will always be protected by the United States, and then to think that there's a magic pudding that's going to provide uh, an unspecified list of new sorts of lethality in our force structure, I think is all pretty pie in the sky. You mean cost? Uh, you mean that it's just we've just got to talk, start talking about the cost per GDP of our defence budget? And it's not just as a proportion of GDP. I mean, we've got to talk about opportunity cost as well. I mean, here we've got a new government in with a, uh, a budget deficit overhang about, the, about one third of the size of our GDP. We haven't had that since the Second World War. And we're already talking about virtually limitless spending, spending on nuclear-propelled submarines, American or British, uh, the acquisition of long-range missiles, what, throwing 100 kilograms of munitions uh, 5,000 kilometres away? Is, is that what we're talking about? Melissa, I wonder how you think, as an ex-diplomat, do you think we should be prepared for a shift in thinking or debate? Should we be, the, the average Australian be caring about this more? Look, I, uh, as a, someone who has watched diplomats a lot, um, I, I think the average Australian should be caring about this. Uh, I have to say, I don't feel I find it a surprise. You know, the, the ALP went to the election with a platform saying that they would do this and Richard Miles has been flagging it in his speeches in Washington and in India. Um, what I find interesting is that it's become more ambitious over time. So in the election, it was just going to be a force posture review. Um, Which and, means and what, where you place your force. where you place your physically forces. Physically place you know, your force, where right. are they physically place so they're ready to be called upon when they're needed. And, and of course, that's a difficult process in itself because there's a lot of, you know, local politics in those issues. Mm. Um, but this has moved now into looking at structure. You know, what is the capability that we, we have and what do we need to have? And it's also moved to being independent. And that says to me that the government actually wants to reconsider some decisions that have already been made um, and need somebody outside with heft, like a former Minister of Defence and former Chief of, of Defence Force, to actually be more wide-ranging and more ambitious in the questions it asks. I mean, the thing I would really like it to focus on is is actually um, thinking of all the arms of statecraft. I mean, the way the Australian planning process works is very much in silos. You have a defence white paper, you have uh, an uh, international development policy, and you have a defence strategic update and now a defence strategic review. Um, in some countries, like in the UK, it's actually now an integrated process. So the UK has an 
overarching strategy that looks at its defence, its diplomacy, its development and trade and gives a vision that they all want to go towards. And for me these days, I mean, given a lot of the threats, uh, grey zone sort of threats, coercion, competition, you've got to be clear that it's not just defence that deals with those. Our development, our diplomacy are equally important and we need to put all of them together when we're thinking about how do we counter those threats. I think you, this is your, your point too, isn't it, Alan Beam, in your, in your latest book, No, Ex- no Enemies, No Friends? It is. I think Melissa has put it much better than I did, though. Um, it's, it really is a, a, a very complex problem that requires um, answers that come from so many different dimensions. And we can't imagine uh, a very strong defence capability or a powerful force posture unless we have an absolutely powerful economy, because the strength of the economy and the strength of our defence force are deeply linked. And our economy is, at the moment, 13th biggest economy. But, you know, over the next two decades, our economy is going to slip beyond the first 20. And we've got to think all of that through. And hence, an emphasis on statecraft rather than simply an emphasis on force planning is, I think, critically essential. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we are just likely to spend a heap of money on something which we find to be totally useless. Well, now, um, Alan DuPont, clearly Alan Beam is referring to, and this is underlying this whole discussion, the the huge AUKUS plans, you know, for um, subs that, well, they may not come by the sound of it until sort of 2045. Do you think this strategic review will even tilt at that particular contract? Because there's, there's another review coming out, I think, just after it, a separate review of the AUKUS plans. Yes, Gerald, and it definitely will, and it will do it in, in this way. So, uh, Melissa is quite right that the um, the original idea of just looking at where we, where we actually station our forces is now grown, so we're now having to look at the capability as well. Okay. Now, AUKUS comes into this in two ways. First of all, the headline of AUKUS is nuclear submarines. So the government needs to understand what submarines we're going to get, how much they'll cost and how long will it take before they're delivered, right? So that will be a separate freestanding assessment report that goes to Richard Miles, the Defence Minister, and he will be wanting to make a decision about that in March, which is about the same time when the defence review will be presented. So the government will look at these two together. And it won't only be nuclear submarines, there'll be a whole range of things to pick up on Alan Beam's point about whole of government joined up capability. So AUKUS includes uh, technological cooperation with the United States and the UK on everything from artificial intelligence to uh, radars and all kinds of enabling uh, parts of the system you need to make the Defence Force work effectively and and more broadly than that. So that's the joined-up part. Now, the key point is, of course, how much is all this going to cost? Mm. Uh, And the government, in fairness, the Albanese government can't answer that question until it decides which submarines we're going to get and how we're going to get them and all these other reviews are done. So this is an important first step to making sensible decisions about what it is we can afford 
to buy over what period of time and whether there is an argument to increase the defence budget or you just make better use of the existing one. And that's really the way it's going to play out. Such big questions. I mean, they they have, I think, reiterated since coming into government, they have no plans. I think this is it's a, was a little bit oblique to change that 2% of the GDP budget for defence. But I mean, it's, uh, yeah, you know, I think it's pretty clear that they're going to come under pressure. Look, some observers, like, say, Hugh White, speaking here on RN's Big Ideas two weeks ago in a very interesting um, discussion, he believes that other rational, achievable strategies exist, which would be both cheaper, quicker and more agile than the AUKUS plans. Here he is with my colleague Paul Barclay. And the reason I think submarines are so important is that I think they are one of the most cost-effective ways of achieving what is the most important strategic operational objective for us, and that is preventing other countries projecting power by sea towards us or, the, or our close neighbours. That's what submarines do. They, they stop other people using the sea by going out there and sinking ships. And the, one of the differences between my vision of Australia's defence needs and almost everybody else's is that I don't think we need six or eight submarines or even 12 submarines. I think we need 24 or 36 because numbers really count. And I think we just need to get a lot of submarines out there into our into our maritime approaches. He was basically saying that, you know, if his thesis, if he follows through his thesis that we can't really rely on the Americans uh, when push comes to shove, um, then we have to say the huge question, could we conceivably defend ourselves? Which, of course, has bedeviled us, you know, ever since European settlement. And he felt that it was possible to argue yes. Yeah. Uh, yes, and, and I think he was correct in that. And it's not the first time somebody has said that. Um, when when uh, Kim Beasley was minister, he commissioned Paul Dibb, who happened to be uh, an officer of the Defence Department, not an external consultant, um, to conduct what was a really profound review. And one of the questions that Dibb had to deal with was, what kinds of conflicts are we going to have to be able to deal with from our own resource base? And it's a very important question. And at the moment, we seem to be very, very confused about that. Uh, when the minister was in Washington and speaking to CSIS just a couple of weeks back, um, he, he was tilting in the direction of high-intensity conflict, you can call that general war, at a distance quite remote from Australia, like six, 7,000 kilometres away. Now, once you're into one of those and you want to be able to initiate combat on your own account, then Hugh's upper figure of 36 actually comes into play. And that is a vast expenditure. Um, it, would, it would dwarf anything we've ever spent in Australia before. And, and that's really the question we've got to address. Okay. What are we going to spend all this money on and just how credible is it? Well, in fact, Alan DuPont, you pointed out in a recent Australian article that it's maritime power in our region that, that, that matters. Um, China's been doing what superpowers do and rapidly building up its navy in particular. What scale is it at now? Yes, okay. Well, so the sort of the bald figures are basically that China has about 350 uh, battle-ready ships compared to the US, which is 297. 
by 2030, it will probably have a Navy the size of the US Navy and the Indian Navy combined. Uh, so we're talking 450 ships. Now, this is a crude measure, but it's one reasonable measure of the relative balance of power and the weighting uh, that each country brings to the table strategically. So so the bottom line is that the Chinese have, have come from virtually nowhere in 20 years to building the most powerful uh, blue water Navy in the world almost. Probably the US is still ahead of it globally, but over the next five or 10 years, uh, if you project forward at the current rates of progress of shipbuilding and so on and dollars spent, that's where we'll be. Now, I don't think that's necessarily going to happen, but that's that's the logic of if things continue as they are. May I just uh, say one thing? Mm. I'd like to just come back, Geraldine, if I may, on mm. Hugh White's uh, prognosis, mm. and I think it's important to talk about this. I just think that um, Hugh's scenario is is unaffordable and it's not politically realistic to talk about 24 to 36 submarines. Uh, the simple reason is that the government will have to politically go with the legacy force it has and work out how it's going to implement AUKUS because it's signed on to the AUKUS agreement, so it's got to make it work. It's no way in the world can I see it going down the track of a completely different scenario, which is only going to add enormous additional cost to what already is an understressed defence budget. So I don't think that is a realistic proposition that we're going to get large numbers of submarines along those lines. So, And, and the other mm -hmm. point I wanted to make just very quickly is this issue about reliance on the United States. Look, um, if we were to have a completely independent uh, defence posture and we fund everything ourselves, including all the things we get on the cheap from the United States, it would completely blow the defence budget and the national budget out of the water. We'd be having to spend probably 5 to 6% of GDP on defence, not 2%. So... Um, that I don't think that's a realistic scenario for Australia, that we get a lot out of the relation with the United States on the cheap, world-class capabilities and technology. The US is not going to suddenly uh, ditch us, nor are we going to ditch the US, because we're all signed on to the US alliance, including the Albanese government. Yeah, but so he, question, he, he makes a point. We thought that in 1941 with the Brits, <laughs> and look what happened. Uh, that's true, but my, my, argument, my argument would be we need to do as much as we possibly can for ourselves. So I'm all for greater self-reliance, but that's not the same as an independent, completely independent defence capability. It makes sense for us to have, as a, a relatively small nation or a medium-sized nation, uh, powerful allies and friends, and that's historically been the argument that's been made in a bipartisan way for the last 100 years, and I don't see that change. So the question is, how do we get more out of the relationship with the United States and other friends and allies to reinforce the capabilities that we have as a small country because trying to defend a continent the size of Australia, 25 million people, is almost impossible yeah. to do by ourselves. Mm -hmm. Look, can, I know, can Melissa, you just... Can I, I come I, in? Yeah, OK. <laughs> yeah, well, Geraldine, I was just going to say the thing we haven't discussed much yet is actually the submarine capability gap. So we've got the issue that we're trying to keep the current Collins class in the water and functional as long as possible, but it looks like there's going to be a gap between that and the earliest possible date that we might receive AUKUS nuclear-propelled submarines. Unless we buy things and, from off the shelf from Spain or France. I mean, that, that's the interesting thing, you know. And I think that's you know, really <laughs> where it's coming from. You know, ALP in, in the election discussion, you know, was really talking up that as a, as a very big concern. And so it, it seems to me that that might be a real focus in the, the reviews are looking at. 
Yes, I mean, th- th- it is interesting, uh, I think I'll put it to Alan Beam, that there are, even even just late this week, the French, and I thought this would happen, that Macron cleverly would say, well, look, you know, we can reinstitute, uh, we can reinstitute our uh, contract because you're having a little difficulties with delays, but it'd have to be built in Cherbourg, not Adelaide, which <laughs> brings into into to, <laughs> to play all sorts of things. Um, so, and, and I might add, Add, uh, there's also a very interesting piece that Brian Tui, the veteran journalist, wrote in April this year, completely, we were all sort of absorbed in elections at the time, about developments at Pine Gap, just thinking what Alan Dupont said, um, that there are upgrades in those facilities there, which will integrate us even more completely with the US military power. Um, now, I wonder... <laughs> You know, it does make you wonder, I mean, there's obviously real yield to that, but does it make us more of a target, Alan Beam, do you think? No, I don't think it does, Geraldine. And and I, I think one of the things that's really important that we all understand is that this is inherently complex and many of the elements in it actually relate to each other chaotically. So there are no binaries that you can hang on. I mean, the issue of independent national defence and our relationship with the United States and with Britain for that matter, they're not alternatives. They all simply fit in together in a much more comprehensive approach to how we conduct national defence. As for AUKUS, we're already doing all the things that AUKUS has mentioned in its communique. By the way, it's not an agreement at this stage. There's nothing signed. It's not a treaty or anything. So we already do those things and we've been doing them for, in the case of the United States, for 80 years and with Britain for nearly 200. So these are these are not new things. They're just political re-expressions of things that have been happening for a long time. To come back, though, to the real issue... China is growing its force in the way that Alan Dupont said. And we all think that that's a very dangerous thing for it to do because it will have forced supremacy, at least at some levels, over the United States Navy. But if you look at the sorts of things that China's acquiring, they're predicated on a comprehensive defence of China rather than power projection to assert China over everybody else. Does China have the capacity to assert itself? Of course it does. Is it going to do so? Is that its strategic intention? I think there is no evidence at all that supports that view. The only evidence we've got is that they would have the potential to do it if they were to change their policy. All right, I'm going so to give Melissa... Uh, an issue of statecraft. Of statecraft, <laughs> this is your point. Look, I'm going to give Melissa the final word. I, I mean... How do we join in this debate of specialists, really, Melissa? Uh, how is this something the average Australian can... It has to care about it, obviously, but how does it join in or can't it? Yeah, look, um, I think think as citizens we all should be uh, both informing ourselves and using our voices um, whenever we can on these issues. Um, I suppose if I've got a final point, the, my final point would be working with the region. Um, if you're talking about Australia's security, one of the key things is to work with the major Southeast Asian states and to see it as shared 
security, as in security with rather than from Asia. Uh, and I, I think there's a lot of work to be done there still. So, you know, this week, for example, Indonesia made a submission to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Review expressing genuine concerns about diversion of the um, weapons-grade material that would be so, would be powering AUKUS submarines. And I think we've got to work a lot with the region to make clear that, you know, we're, we, we have all of the safeguards in place, we're not trying to start an arms race. It's all about working together to, to keep that uh, stability and peace in the region that we all benefit from. So I, I think uh, we shouldn't think of it just as ourselves alone. We should be thinking of it as a regional challenge that a number of other countries share. All right, look, thank you very much. <laughs> I think we'll be talking about this quite a lot up to March, <laughs> March and beyond. I really thank you all for your time. Alan DuPont, Alan Beam and Melissa Connolly-Tyler. Thank you, Geraldine. And Alan DuPont is Chief Executive of the Cognoscenti Group. Alan Beam is from the Australia Institute. His recent book, No Enemies, No Friends, uh, is a uh, upswell publication. And Melissa Connolly-Tyler is Program Lead at the Asia-Pacific Development, Diplomacy and Defence Dialogue. A lot of text coming through, but there's one. Will any of our panellists refer to the significance of today's date in this discussion. That's Joe from Warrnambool. Of course, this was the date in 1945 when the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. I didn't fully realise it. Thank you, Joe. Um, and of course, there's those big non-proliferation talks underway in Washington as in New York as we speak as well. Well, time now for a lovely story. Well, amidst the clicking of the photographers, if you listen carefully, you could hear the grunts of three giants of the natural world being released into the English countryside in Kent last month. They're the first wild bison to roam Britain for thousands of years. European bison came within a whisker of extinction less than a century ago, and they've only survived thanks to captive breeding and the practice of rewilding in places like Poland, Slovenia, Romania and Germany. Rewilding involves the reintroduction and resurgence of species in the wild, including the big herbivores and the carnivores, like wolves. It's essentially about giving nature space again. One of the major organisations involved in this work is Rewilding Europe, which manages reserves in Scotland, Romania and Portugal and Ukraine, to name a few. Franz Geppers is the Executive Director of Rewilding Europe and I welcomed him earlier to Saturday Extra. Yeah, hello. Nice to speak to you in Australia. <laughs> what is it like for you personally to see bison roaming through a European forest? Well, that's, um, I mean, knowing that the species was nearly extinct, they only survived in captivity, not in the wild. And as you were just explaining, we, we were left with only 50, 50 odd animals in Poland in the zoo. And, and that was in 19, sort of 1927, 1928, I think. That was the sort of the, the, the all time low. And, uh, and now we are heading towards 10,000 European bison back, not all in the wild, but the majority. And releasing animals like this, I mean, I've, I've done it a number of times and it's just unbelievable to see. You, you might expect they will just run out of the truck and then they, they just, just go off, but they come out very calm. They sniff, they eat the soil, they sort of want to get sense of the place. 
and then they just walk away easily and and it's a wonderful sighting and um it's it's very symbolic it feels like look you know we can we can do something uh, something good we can bring animals back that were uh, were gone for a long time it's a positive story and it, it provides a perspective and and hope and um, particularly for the people who live in that who live in that area. Yes, well, indeed, if you if you look at the video of those bison, that's precisely what they did. They sort of sussed out their new environment and then calmly got on with it. They're known as a keystone species, aren't they? And there are others yes. like this. And apart from being important in their own right, uh, maybe you could help us understand what role does bison play as a keystone species in the landscape. Well, Europe, just like Australia and Africa, used to have large mammals um, roaming in big numbers. And lots of people think that, you know, sort of climax vegetation is forest. But that was uh, that picture comes from a, a period in time where people thought when actually all the large mammals were already gone, hunted by by the hunters and gatherers that, that came before agriculture took place in Europe. But those animals are, we call them ecosystem engineers because of their, just like elephants in Africa, and they, they are uh, big mammals that can change landscapes. And that's a keystone species and because through that, they create space, a myriad of habitats and, and spaces for, for thousands of other species. So, so they, they sort of, sorry to interrupt, but they sort of act as this gorgeous phrase, they're the nature's woolly bulldozers. They keep the forest under control. They carve corridors. They rub yeah. vegetation, all of that, don't they? Yeah, but I wouldn't call them bulldozers because that sounds a bit like they're just uh, running over things. They are the finest engineers you can think because they create these little little different habitats from, you know, the places where they wallow in the sand or in the soil up to, indeed, they debark trees. And, you know, rewilding, uh, it's not about keeping things under control. It's about allowing nature to take its own shape, not steered by people. So we don't see bison as a as a machine like our or a bulldozer even mm. we see them as a natural element of a functional ecosystem and, and landscape so they play their role and benefit other species and um now we are lacking most of those large herbivores in europe we used to have wild horse we used to have the auroca which is the mother of all cattle in the world uh, we used to have lots of bison we have so the large grazing animals have virtually disappeared and we're bringing them back now into these landscapes because lots of the species maybe the majority of our biodiversity, you talk about insects, reptiles, birds, butterflies, you name it. They are dependent on these sort of half open mosaic landscapes that these large herbivores create. Mm. And so anything from bare soil up to close canopy forest and, and, and everything in between is where, where all the richness is in, in Europe's biodiversity. And, and of course, also in other places on Earth. I mean, it is marvellous listening to you speak like this and the fact that the numbers are growing so much. And this reintroduction Introduction of bison and bears as well. It's part of this broader rewilding approach. Maybe you could outline it, please, because it's certainly, in my recent trip to the UK, I realised it was it was really gathering pace as an idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's just important to say um, that we're not reintroducing. There's no reintroduction of bears or wolves or any of the large carnivores, because the the, the wonderful and great thing is that they're expanding on their own and they're recolonizing places. So I live in a small country called the Netherlands, and we had the first wolves back in 2015, and and now we have around 15 animals. And just this week, uh, a new den was discovered with three pups. They're reproducing here, and and it's and this is the story about Europe. We see wildlife come back happening on its own, mostly. 
Well, tell us a little more, if you would, about the Rewilding Europe projects. I'd love to know about some that you're running in quite remote parts of, say, Romania and Bulgaria and even Italy, for instance. Yeah, I'm happy to do so. So um, one of the key sort of flagship uh, landscapes that we work is in the southern Carpathians. So that's in Romania. The Carpathians are some some of the wildest mountains in Europe we have, uh, stretching from Ukraine uh, into further south into Romania and and Slovakia, Poland, up to Serbian border. That's a, a big landscape where there is thousands of bears and wolves. And, and Eurasian links, so it's a very sort of a, a big core area for wild nature in Europe. But the bison, which used to roam there for you know hundreds of thousands of years, was gone um, since 200 years, and we brought it back. And this was not just you know an easy process; it took years of preparation because this is all about you know the people that live there. Uh, so it took a number of years where we found this municipality which said, yeah, we want this animal back. And and when we looked into the feasibility of it, we actually found old Romanian names saying the Bison Valley and the Bison Bridge and the Bison Stream. So there was this connection. And, and actually we found um, rock paintings that were like uh, just a year, year before. Anyway, in 2014, we brought the first animals back and animals from different parts of Europe, from breeding centers. And we released the first 15 females from Sweden, males from Italy. They teamed up nicely and, and it was a great success. And since then, we have sort of brought back every year. We had did uh, translocations of animals from different sources and trying to build up a free roaming wild population of bison, which is now over 100, uh, roaming that landscape. And it's just unbelievable and fantastic to see how, how they're doing, but also how the local communities are benefiting. Well, that was my next question, because yeah. often these animals have been hunted or poisoned and we've, of course, reduced their habitat. So how do you yeah. go about convincing local communities to coexist with them? Yeah, well, I always say rewilding is, is actually not so much about bringing animals back. It's creating a wilder landscape and providing new perspectives for people. Because in a lot of these places where we talk about, there is rural depopulation, young people move to cities, old generations stay be- behind. There's not much perspective in, in many places. And so this brings in sort of new dynamic, new energy. And we were lucky to find one place where the mayor turned out to be a vet and was very interested in this because he saw the opportunity big time. And and that's where we started to talk with everyone and, and prepare for it. Look, I do understand, though, like in France, where the brown bear population is increasing after their reintroduction in the Pyrenees. It's a wonderful story. But there have been attacks on local sheep and even some humans. Um, I mean, it's easy to say we want to see these creatures back. But if you're living next to them, it may well be a problem. Yes, and and this is uh, this is all about coexistence. So we are not separating animals from people. That is impossible in Europe. Our reserves and national parks are too small to have viable populations, in particular of some of these larger animals. Uh, and this doesn't come without challenges, of course. And so people have to change their behavior. So if you think that you can leave out your sheep during the night while wolves are coming back, forget about it. People need, just like in the old times, bring sheep back at night and protect them and, and go out with the shepherd on, during the day. Then it's fine. We have those systems for, for, for thousands of years. But people have to shift their practice that they had developed without those animals around back to, you know, systems where there there is a possibility for coexistence. And we have we have hundreds of examples how that can happen. And um, 
You know, the, the point of sheep farming is uh, is an interesting one because, I mean, economically, there is no damage. You know, we slaughter zillions of sheep every day in Europe. Mm. And if one is taken by a wolf or a bear, you know, it's all over the newspaper. <laughs> so it's very, very much about the emotion of it. Economically, it does. It's, you know, it's, it's a non-issue, but it's emotion. And they just don't want to accept that there's this animal back. I mean, I know that one of the your approaches is to make a new, almost like an economic viability and, and vitality in some of these areas and thinking, okay. uh, imagining and articulating that it might be a very good tourist attraction. But for instance, in that area with the bears, um, they could bring in particular dogs. I think they're called the Patu, are they? Uh, the dogs um, uh, that did w- sort of protect in the past. But the the flock, but they can also be known to attack people. And this is causing a great deal of caution on behalf of the of the herders. Yeah, I have to say that, uh, I mean, when people talk about bears, people immediately think about the, the grizzlies and so on. In Europe, we have brown bear, which is mostly vegetarian. They eat grass and, and berries and all that. We have bear populations that have coexisted with people for thousands of years. And bears are very friendly. And, you know, in one country where we work a lot, was a thousand bears in, in Croatia, uh, where, of course, they record all the sort of human bear encounters. And at the, one of the recent figures I saw that there were like thousands of encounters and there was only one where there was a, an issue, which was a hunter that was, was around and, and hunting and the mother with cubs attacked the guy. But it, you have we have to be very careful to just say bears attack people because it's the same with wolves. People say wolves attack people or children. It has never happened in Europe. No proven case. And so... I understand there is fear, and I can imagine if you walk in the forest, there's bears around, there's fear. But the, the conflicts are more in um, in places where they start uh, taking down uh, beehives and, you know, go for the honey. And, and this is where you can easily protect those beehives with small electric fences. Mm-hmm. But with humans, uh, bears and wolves are afraid of people. They just run away. That's what happens. Unless they get cornered and they don't know what to do and they want to protect their cubs, then they, they might defend themselves. But uh, spontaneous attacks don't exist. Uh, look, how popular is it becoming then for travellers to visit some of these reserves run by rewilding Europe? There's a huge market for nature and, and, and wildlife-based tourism. I mean, we have, so Europe has, don't count European Russia, because then it would be like 25,000 brown bears. But so without European Russia, it would be 17,000. They are in Major populations are in Romania, Croatia, Slovenia, for, and, and so on. And there's bear watching tourism. You know, Europeans used to go used to go to North America to see bears. Well, they're just around the corner, and you can see them. You can photograph them. You can do bear bear hikes, bear watching. So it's a in, in Finland, there's actually a huge economy around bear watching and bear photography, uh, next to wolves and uh, wolverine and other other carnivores and other species. So let's say the sort of the wildlife economy and the wildlife watching is growing fast in Europe. And it's a drawcard for uh, for local economic development to have that wildlife around. So, and, and the economic value of wildlife, we know that from other parts of the world, is big, very big. Well, look, it's a wonderful story. Uh, Franz Capers, yeah. thank you very much indeed for joining us. You're welcome. What a lovely job he's got. <laughs> Or passion, is it? Or vocation. Franz Scapers, the executive director and co-founder of Rewilding Europe. And there's a, an idea for travel, if ever there was one, if you want to get away from the hordes. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Doog. Thank you for your company today. 
And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.